0: Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Those are verses 5 through 9 of Psalm 116. Which, along with Psalms 110 and 117, are the Psalms appointed for today, Saturday, July the 9th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We are continuing our look at the book of Deuteronomy today. We're going to see the death of Moses in this place, uh, in this reading, and also we're going to be in the Gospel according to Matthew, uh, chapter 24, verses 32 to 51, and in Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 10, verses 14 to 21. So Moses goes up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, which is where the tribes were on the other side of the Jordan, as far as Tadan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the Western Sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. So he saw the length and breadth of the land. <clears throat> and the lord said to him this is the land which i swore to abraham to isaac and to jacob i will give it to your offspring i have let you see it with your eyes but you shall not go over there so moses the servant of the lord died there in the land of moab according to the word of the lord and he buried him in the valley of the land of moab opposite beth peor but no one knows the place of his burial to this day that's certainly an unusual reality because everything else is it becomes a shrine we know for instance where abraham and um Sarah were buried, uh, they were in the buried in the cave at Machpelah, uh, and we know all these other things, but but it's odd that we don't know the burial place of Moses. It's very, very strange in so many ways, but there's a reason for that, and, and that is is that, that they had to move on. Their lives had to continue moving on into the land that, that the Lord had sworn to give them. And so they weren't to continually go back there to the place where Moses died, no, they were supposed to be in the land and be there always. In fact, in Jewish eschatology, which is the study of what's going to happen at the end, one of the things that you'll hear is is that those who die outside in the land will be resurrected first. So they're the first fruits of the resurrection in in Jewish eschatology. And then those who have died outside the land have to be purified because they weren't supposed to be outside the land. So what they have to do is (laughs) they're subterranean tunnels, and then they roll (laughs) whatever distance they are from the uh, land, and then poof, they're popped up and they are then purified by that process so that they can then participate in the resurrection as well. So th- there's a sense that, that because Moses never entered the land, they're not supposed to continue going back to that place as a shrine. It's, it's intended that they stay in the land. And Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. In other words, that, that he, he was not an old man, even at 120 years old. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. So they kept the prescribed period of mourning, and now it's time to move on. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit and of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So Moses had, had done... The transference of power from himself to Joshua, and he done it in the sight of all the people, so that they would see that he was the chosen one to take his place. Because the people revered God as a sort of de- uh, Moses, I mean, as a sort of demigod, and so when he would have laid his hands on Joshua, then that would have been a clear signal to everybody there that that not only had he had chosen him to be his successor, but also the power in Moses had been transferred to Joshua for the work of leading the people into the land. So, so that power then comes, and he's full of the spirit of wisdom. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his servants and to his land, and for all the mighty power and great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So there there are certain things here that are characteristic of Moses. First is that, that the Lord knew him face to face. Second, he did signs and wonders in the land of Egypt in front of Pharaoh and his servants. And then finally, in the mighty power and the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And so you can count things like the the plague of snakes, the serpents, where Moses has to do the fiery serpent on the stick, the things that he did to authenticate himself before the people of Israel to begin with, and then the getting water from the rock and all the other things that he did in the wilderness. And so those things are the same kinds of things that Jesus does. Moses in Deuteronomy 19 says, look for a prophet like me. And when he comes, listen to him. But then also, you see these particular things that the people remember about Moses that set him apart from everybody else. He was the one through whom the law was given, but he also did these things. And he had a different relationship with God from everyone else who ever came after him, until, that is, Jesus. And also sort of with Elijah because God meets with him sort of face-to-face in the wilderness and then at the cave later. So we see this this transfer of power to Joshua in the same way that Jesus transferred it to the apostles when he breathed on them. In the, the gospel lesson today, we're getting close to the end. So we're getting close to the end of Jesus's earthly life. He's, he, he's now instructing his disciples in, in final things, and he's already told them, There's going to be signs. Keep an eye out. Watch for the signs and don't be misled. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer's near. So also, when you see all these things that he just spoken about, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And as I said, Josephus, in in his history, talks about these things that happened in AD 66, prior to the fall of the temple. And it's the announcement from heaven. They see signs in the heavens, and, and that causes them to fear. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So, in other words, everything else will go, and we know that, again, from the book of the Revelation, that everything else will go, but the Word of God endures throughout all things. It's by the Word of God all things were created, and then by the Word of God revealed in the scrolls given to the Lamb who takes it from the one seated on the throne. The the Word of God comes, again, not to create a world, but to end it and to destroy it. So he gives the word at the beginning in Genesis 1 in order to create, and then he gives the word again through the scrolls that Jesus takes and the angels proclaim, then those things are the destruction of the world. So it's by the word of God that all things are created, and it's by the word of God that all things will be destroyed and then recapitulated. So my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, exactly when this is, no one knows. I can't tell you the date is what he's saying. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. He kept his counsel, his own counsel, in this. And then we see the revelation of this later, but not the timing. In the book of the Revelation, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, it's going to come, like he says in other places, as a thief in the night. So we're not going to to get the heads up on exactly the date that this is going to come, but we need to watch for the signs and be prepared for his coming. Therefore, stay awake, for you don't know on which day the Lord is coming. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Absolutely. It's the reason we lock our doors at night, because we don't know (laughs) what might happen in the night. And so the reason thieves can come in the night is because we are asleep, we are unaware, and we're not alert to the danger that's being presented. He says, therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. So the, it's, it's the Boy Scout motto, it's just be prepared, be prepared always, be prepared for the coming of Jesus at all times. That, that's a check on behavior, that's a check on, on the way we live our lives and what we do. He says, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master will set over his household to give him their food at the proper time? <clears throat> Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing <clears throat> when he comes. truly i say to you he will set him over all his possessions so if you're found to be trustworthy then god will trust you i mean it's just simple as that right if you prove yourself to be trustworthy god will give you more so if it's it's a parable that jesus uses a million times if you're faithful in, in a little then 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 he will give you more but if you're not faithful in a little then he can't trust you with more and so we have to be faithful In everything that we've been given, Moses was faithful in all that he had been given. He blew it one time. But we have to be faithful in whatever we're given to do. We have to be faithful stewards of our money. We have to be faithful stewards of our time. We have to be faithful stewards of our families if we have them. We have to be faithful stewards for our friends. We have to be faithful stewards of the gospel. We have an obligation, according to the gospel, to preach the gospel at all times. So we should constantly be thinking of ways in which we can then preach. And it's important that we be found faithful with what we've been given. Truly, I say to you, he'll set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed, delayed, begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he doesn't expect and in an hour he doesn't know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So who are the hypocrites? I mean, he's already referred to the scribes and the Pharisees as hypocrites. So so he's talking about there's judgment, that judgment is real. And and I don't understand, I honestly don't, I don't understand how you could possibly read Scripture and not see the truth that judgment is real. There's no question that it is. It's it's just odd that that we can come up with some idea of universalism when Jesus spoke so often about judgment. It is really bizarre. I don't get it. I it, it, I don't understand it at all, and that's not being faithful with the word of God at all. In the epistle today, Paul says he's still talking about this idea of of the Jews versus how are the, how does how do you square the circle of of the covenant with the fact that some, Paul's saying some Jews are not going to get in, and he says it's always been based on something. It's there's something required from us. And Paul's not arguing that what's required of us has anything to do with what we do. That's not the primary way we get in. It it, it reveals faith, certainly, that we're seeking to become Christ-like. But what Paul's saying is, is that if you don't have faith in the thing God told you to have faith in, then you don't get in simply by virtue of being in the right community. That's true of even people in churches. Just because you hang out with Christians doesn't make you a Christian. I mean, I can remember the old analogy of being in church no, no more makes you a Christian than being in a garage makes you an automobile. And there's a truth in that. So, so the, our, our faith should be proven by works, but, but it's a result of the faith. It's a result of accepting the grace that God's given us. And then we begin to work not to please him, but from the place where we are beloved. And we are pleasing to him. And so what we want is to please our father. We, want him, we know what he likes. We know exactly what he likes. He likes his son. He likes Jesus. He likes that righteousness matters. So we need to take on the image of his son in order to please him. And, and because he has loved us, we should want to please him. And that's our way of loving him in return. He says, so how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? This is, again, being a steward of what you've been given to do. You, you're not called necessarily to preach, teach, and all that kind of stuff, but you know how to give an accounting of the faith and the hope that's in you. Because you, you, you should know the gospel well enough to share it. You should know the gospel of grace. You should know the, the, the story well enough to say that, that his son, willingly took on death, willingly took on sin in order that we might take on his righteousness. And we know that his sacrifice was acceptable because God raised him from the dead. Simple as that. And so we can count on him. We can trust him. We can know these things, not just believe in some uh, random way. But no, we should know these things deep within. He says, as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And And like I said, that's all of us. It's not the person who stands in the pulpit. It's the person who actually is out in the world day by day, preaching the gospel through their lives and, when possible, sharing it verbally. He said, but they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Who has believed what he has heard from us? And what what did the Lord tell Isaiah? He says, these people have hard hearts. I'm sending you to them so that they won't have an excuse because you gave the word to them, but they're not going to hear you. They will not hear you because their hearts aren't ready to hear it and their ears aren't ready to hear it. So I send you because I don't want them to be without an excuse that says nobody told us, but you, they won't hear you. So your mission field is a group of people who are not going to heed your warning. And so that's exactly what Isaiah says. He says, so then Paul goes on to say, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Paul's whole argument in the first 11 chapters of Romans is no one has an excuse. Even those who haven't heard, he says, don't have an excuse. And it's sort of a Noahide argument that that there are certain things you can know about the world and know that these are things you should do based on the orderliness of the world, but then that should cause you to seek to know more. And so here he says, though, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And so that's true with the witness of creation, common grace given to all mankind. But it's also true in the sense that missionaries have gone all over. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation with a foolish nation. I will make you angry. In other words, so God's going to say, if you won't listen to me, I'm going to give grace to these people over here so that you'll be envious of them. In order to turn you back to me. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who didn't seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Again, he's saying the same thing. He says that God is revealing himself, not just to the people of Israel, but to the people everywhere, because that was the job of Israel to so live in the land in such a way that their blessedness and prosperity abounded in such a way that other people would ask the question, why? It's what happened in the beginning of the time of Solomon when people came from all over the earth to see the wisdom that had been given to Solomon. And Solomon gave glory to God, the one who gave the wisdom, rather than saying, yep, I'm the wisest guy on the face of the earth. And so the the intention was for them to be so blessed that the renown— went out all over the earth and people came to see in in christ it's been flipped we're told to go and tell but but it's important that we do this work and so it's important that we take the word of god and we make it manifest in the world not just in a church building on a sunday or a wednesday night no it's god's people in the world day by day Sharing the good news, being the people of hope, being the people of faith for the world to see. It's a remarkable thing when you see somebody who can stand in the midst of storms and all kinds of horrible things happening and stand and proclaim what Job does. And I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he shall stand on the earth, and in my eyes, I shall see God. And what that says is, therefore, I will not be moved. By all these things happening around me because I have the sure and certain knowledge that he lives. And if he lives, then so do those who believe in him. So do I. What have I to fear? What can man do to me? We have nothing to fear, Paul says. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And it's important that we stand in that knowledge and proclaim the greatness and the goodness of our God. And then he says, but uh, so he says, all these other people I've made myself known to. And then he says of Israel all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And which is what exactly what Jesus said is Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you to myself, but you wouldn't. Don't be those people. Submit yourselves to the Lord today. Allow him to take you and give you the strength that you need. Trust him with all your heart. Believe in the truth, stand in that truth, in the same way that Moses did, strong to the end of his days, and strong like Paul did to the end of his days. It's important that we stand. The world needs our witness, and that's exactly what all these lessons say. The world needs our witness, because that witness then becomes strength to them as they seek after the strength that's in us.